Jeb, the Russian Air Force is going to participate in the red flag training exercise. So it's a red flag. That's that, that, that Top Gun thing where Tom Cruise and his buddies get together and pretend to shoot each other, right? It's kind of like that. Top Gun, of course, is the Navy. Yeah. Um, and um, Top Gun, of course, also arose out of, out of some of the uh, U.S. military uh, aviation's failures to uh, um, properly uh, um, uh, exert their um, uh, preeminence over uh, North Vietnam during the Vietnam War. Mm-hmm. And, um, both, well, the Navy started it and, and developed a, a uh, I, I think the Navy started it. Maybe they, it could have been uh, simultaneous. But anyway, the, the, two, the two services developed their own uh, higher-end training uh, regimen. Um, one of those uh, eventually became what we know of was Top Gun, and of course memorialized in the movie. The Air Force uh, developed their own uh, regimen, and one of the uh, features, if you will, one of the characteristics of the Air Force training uh, is to do something they call the red flag exercises, mm-hmm. where one group of, of generally uh, U.S. pilots uh, would form an aggressor squadron, as they called it, and would fly, uh, they used to fly F-5s, they used to fly uh, um, uh, aircraft that were not uh, frontline U.S. aircraft, but um, uh, were, also, but were, were um, comparable in performance in, in uh, uh, other characteristics mm-hmm. to some of the Soviet aircraft. And in fact, there have been, I think, MiGs used, uh, for example, uh, in the past where... Um, uh, whether it was you know an ally uh, had had some MIGs in operation. Hey, bring your MIGs over. We want to look, we want to fly against them. We want to shoot them up. You know, mm-hmm. kind of thing. Uh, well, that's uh, we've come way, way, way around the circle. Well, okay. no, wait, hang on. Fin- fin- <laughs> just I'm sorry. One thing, maybe you didn't finish the thought. Yeah. So the Americans are the aggressors. Well, no, no, no. The, the, in the past, in the way this was originally set up. Uh-huh. Um, there, there was an aggressor squadron formed from American pilots, from mm-hmm. U.S. Air Force pilots, and they, as I re, as I understand it, uh, were were heavily into their role. Uh, they walked and talked and and uh, had uniforms and insignia and you know, that kind of thing. That was more reminiscent of uh, the then Soviet Air Force than the U.S. Air Force. I see. Okay. And, and and again, we're we're highly into this whole whole thing. So they were well, playing the role of the bad guys. They were playing the role of the bad guys against uh, uh, various squadrons uh, from the U.S. from from frontline U.S. Air Force units, and they would get together periodically. I don't know, every six months, whatever, for what was called red flag. Right. Exercise. Okay. This is the red flag, of course, coming from uh, the, the Soviet uh, um, colors and, and the Soviet flag. So they've you know, done this for, I would guess, literally decades, where they, they, uh, an aggressor squadron uh, goes up against a frontline Air Force squadron, and uh, they all you know, learn stuff from the exercises and, and have obviously uh, come out better trained and, and better capable uh, pilots. Um, Obviously, also, after doing this for uh, several years, you, you start to run out of, of ways to make it new and interesting. Mm-hmm. Um, okay. So, <laughs> yeah. All right. Well, this is a good one. Yeah. Yeah. So, according to um, – this is the uh, – uh, this is a Russian um, – this is an English-language Russian publication. Okay. It's uh, uh, The Voice of Russia, uh, Radio Russia or whatever it's called, mm-hmm. website. 
Okay. And there's an article on here that I came across through, you know, another website, as I say, but talks about how later this year, Russian pilots are going to bring their aircraft, Sukhois and MiGs and whatever, uh, to, uh, in this case, the Nellis Air Force Base outside of Las Vegas. Mm-hmm. And do a red flag exercise with U.S. pilots. Okay. No, and, wait a minute. And so this, are, this, yeah. the streams are crossed. Cats yeah. and dogs are living together. Okay? I know. Because 30 years ago, this would have been, you, you would have been incarcerated. You I, would have been yeah. institutionalized for even suggesting something like this. So, so the Russian, are, they, are the Americans still playing the, and making the finger quotes, bad guys this time? Are the Russians going to be the good guys? I mean, Well, red, red flag differs a little bit from the fighter weapons school in that regard. Yeah. Uh, red flag is, a, is, is an international exercise where they coordinate units at all different levels, fighters, bombers, tankers, and they go on these mass mission assaults. Uh, what's called the Nellis Range up north of Las Vegas. Uh, it's not exactly like Fighter Weapons School. Fighter Weapons School, Navy and, and Air Force, like Jeb says, there's Americans flying aggressor aircraft, but that is training in air-to-air combat techniques. Okay. That, which were pointed out to be really deficient in the early in the Vietnam War. Right. Uh, they'd started to depend on standoff missiles and stuff like that. And when the MiGs got them into dogfights, I, I believe the F-4 Phantom didn't even have a machine gun early on. Early on, the early versions of it did not have uh, anything to fire bullets or cannon shells. Yeah. Uh, so Red Flag teaches fighter pilot uh, dogfighting techniques, right. air-to-air combat. Right. Red flag is an all-levels air exercise. Okay. Now, David, I think you misspoke. A moment ago, you meant to say Top Gun teaches air-to-air. Fighter Weapons School. Right. Yeah, top, top Gun, top is, gun. The, is U.S. Navy's fighter. Okay, right. good. Now, Red Flag, red flag is the international. They bring in NATO countries. Uh, several years ago, a photo group I belonged to spent a day at Nellis during the uh, red flag exercise, uh, first one of that year, uh, I believe it was in February that we were out there, and we got to stand between these two runways for about an hour and a half while they launched 116, 118 different combat aircraft. Yeah, there you go. Okay, now they're up there. They're fighting ground troops and artillery and shooting up tanks and providing air cover against aggressors. And this has got air combat going on on multiple levels with multiple different types of aircraft from different countries with different flight profiles. And it's all geared to help them learn how to coordinate that for a mass assault. So it's really dramatically different than fighter okay. weapons school. All right. But now, for the, so now the Russians are going to be in this... <laughs> I just can't. They're an ally now, right? I know. I understand, and I'm making. I'm joking around a little bit here because yes, it's a good thing that they're an ally now, and uh, but it is a little bit of a brain twist, tw- twister, as Jeb alludes to, and uh, a- absolutely. And I'm dying to hear some feedback from the R- Russian pilots on how well. Uh, our aggressor squadrons do it, mimicking what they used to do. Well, there's that, and and I I don't know. Are, do you think are the Russian aircraft going to fly alongside the American aircraft, or are they going to compete against each other? Because that would be. I, I thought I that they were part of the exercise. Okay. That is the participants, uh, and these do these units do get scored on how well they execute their missions. Yeah. So. Well, that's that's going to be very very interesting. But very, this is all with live ammo and live bombs. Oh, okay. 
So uh, obviously yeah. they, they, they fight against mock targets. and uh, Well, uh, if you count real tanks and real missile sites that are, you know, uh, right. decommissioned as, as, yeah. But, you know, UAVs kind of, right? You know, it's like right. unmanned tanks. And, yeah, and the Top Gun stuff, they use technology to score shootdowns. Yeah. They don't actually fire live rounds at right, one another. Yeah, I guess I, I, sort, I thought I but knew this, that. Yeah. This red flag, they use live ammo, and we were cautioned when we were there photographing that if for so, any reason something came back and aborted, uh, that we needed to be aware of the possibility that they may be returning to the runway still armed. Mm-hmm, yeah. And we didn't want to be anywhere near trying to photograph that because of what could happen if it crashed with live ammo and, and weapons on board. Right. So say it again when, when this is happening? Oh, October. mid No, early October. Yeah. 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 I, I don't know that they're carrying live ammo and shooting it at each other. Like I, 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 live bombs and they're strafing and that kind of thing. Right. The air-to-air the air side of that, of course, I'm sure, is with dummy yeah. stuff. Okay. Jeff's exactly right. So... Speaking of you, uh, UAVs, um, so... Uh, well, they could throw were, were some we, into the mix we? there. Well, we mentioned it. I guess I brought it up. I don't know. I was <laughs> unconsciously my, building a segue question. there. Right? I'm sorry, Jeff. Go ahead. I, here's my real question, though. You know, maybe we can... A, are they going to be using F-22s? Yeah. Uh, uh, B, uh, maybe, you know, the Russians have, have some oxygen system, you know, we can use. For the we, can't, we can't. No, no, no. We can't let the Ruskies in here. They'll see the big board. <laughs> you can't find it here. This is the war room. Um, Has so, anybody gotten a hold of General Ripper yet? Yeah. Uh, Jeff Ward called our attention to this story from Avweb, uh, the drone code. Uh, so did we talk about this? That uh, that they we pro- never really did. I don't th- think th- somebody uh, who is proposing the uh, the the rules of the rules or the the code of honor. I want to. I'm 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 searching for we, the right we, term. We talked about this among ourselves. It never rose to an episode. Yeah. The uh, this is a story from like I said from Avweb, uh, the Association for Unmanned Vehicle Systems International published a set of guidelines on Monday. This is a story dated uh, July second uh, to help ensure that drone aircraft are oper- operated in a quote, safe, non-intrusive manner uh, by proactively adhering to these, oh, and then there's a quote saying, by proactively adhering to these guidelines, we want to demonstrate how the rights of individuals and safety of all users of civil airspace are our our top priority. Um, Anyways, and uh, the story here sort of of alludes to the famous uh, Asimov's uh, Three Laws of Robotics, uh, which is, you know, Which is kind of uh, an obvious comparison. Of course, we're long past the three laws of robotics when it comes to robots, even today in technology. Our robots today already violate those laws left and right. There's, you know, but uh, uh, I don't know. What do we we, think about the fact? We've been flying with robots for years. Yeah, but I'm saying the three Asimov's three laws of robotics kind of have. Well, at the heart of them, they have to do with not hurting humans. A robot is supposed to be, be, be. You know, system-wise, incapable of injuring a human being intentionally. Well, let's so, let's distinguish between robots and and uh, uh, combat vehicles. Well, in 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 Asimov, that that was no distinction. A robot was a robot, and they weren't allowed right. to hurt people. Um, and and today, I mean, we've we're long past the time when robots oh, yeah, are killing that's, people. That, that I mean, ship has sailed. Yeah. yeah. Um, 
Of course, it would be nice if we could train the ones that are flying in the national airspace to not kill people. That um, would be a, a beneficial thing. Yeah, but... Uh, well, the, the robots that we've been flying with have done a, a, a pretty good job at that uh, high percentage of the time uh, for decades, but that's because they've always had a human backup sitting there. I'm talking about an autopilot. What is it yeah. but a robot? Yeah, exactly. And, and not coincidentally, they you know, generally didn't have any weapons. <laughs> connected into their circuitry. Yeah. Um, so, uh, anyways, in looking at this quote, quote unquote, and I, I finger quotes, whatever. Um, the first one here just sets me off. Just really sets me off. It's under the heading subheading safety. It says, "quote We will not operate uh, UAs, uh, unmanned aerial air- aircraft, whatever. We will not uh, operate UAs in a manner that presents undue risk to persons or property on the surface or in the air." Who the bleep is to decide what an undue risk is? Yeah. Okay. It's crazy. And and what that implies is that the, maybe there is due risk that uh, we can subject yeah. persons or property yeah. on the surface yeah. or in the air, too. What the frack? Yeah. It's crazy. It's, you know. This, this, is, this is like um, um, uh, Orwellian, um, I don't know what this is. This is just insane. I don't know. Yet, totally yet another example of security theater or the the equivalent, you know. Well, I I think it's another example of uh revenue potential overweighing uh safety potential. Well, this is all about making money. Yeah, it's all about making money. Yeah, well, that's okay. I, I, There's nothing wrong with making money. It's just that Well, we there is if you're if you're doing it um um in endangering humans. That I agree with. I mean, we we decided uh, that society is allowed to put limits on business activity for the safety of the participants and the public decades ago. Yeah, but then uh, we started ratcheting it back. Right. Now we've been ratcheting it back, and this is one of those instances where it, it never really existed beyond the FAA's uh, uh, existing guidelines for radio control models, basically. Right. Uh, and now, thanks to Congress's immense foresight and brain power, uh, this is being uh, <laughs> this is being steamrolled into the public uh, airspace uh, on a on a fast track timetable because a lot of businesses, a lot of defense contractors, just bitched and moaned interminably about how the FAA just wouldn't let them have access to the airspace like they knew they need. And don't worry, trust us, we'll be safe. See, we have a code of conduct. Yeah. All right. That's your code of conduct right here. (laughs) i tell you what, when your code of conduct can sit there and die from the mistake of the machine, uh, then maybe I got a little respect for your code of conduct, but this is all with the people putting these things into the airspace, uh, uh, exposed to nothing but legal risks, and we know how 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 they're going to react to that. They're going to want liability exclusion from that because they're just trying to do business. Yeah. No, once once you know, here's what's going to happen. You know, one of these things is going to fly into seven five or seven three or something at some point. And everybody aboard the 7-3 is going to die. And then they, everybody, all the estates are going to sue the manufacturer of the drone. And the drone will declare bankruptcy and throw itself on the mercy of Congress. We've been bankrupted. Please bail us out. Yeah. That, that's, that scenario will happen someday. But I bet the first one will be that a 7-3 will go down unexplained. Oh, right. yeah. 
And I would submit to you that that's already happened. Uh, it could be. I, I mean, I don't want to get too 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 conspiracy theory here, but you never know. And you There's, know, I'll Google it here while I'm while we're talking. Okay. Well, while here. you're googling it, I'm going to do this. Welcome, folks, to episode 296 of Uncontrolled Airspace, the General Aviation Podcast. background noise throughout the day but it's just airplanes so it's not it's, it's not really noise. good background noise That's yeah right. this That's is right. this is the best seat in the house we got sky riders now we got sky riders, got sky riders they, they, <laughs> does that say you cap i can't it's got a runway in the front yard <laughs> <laughs> and you're in sight clear west turkey special ground good afternoon sir taxi via foxtrot and delta Recording this episode on uh, what's today, Saturday, July fourteenth, twenty twelve, and uh, joining me here in the virtual hangar, are my two good friends, uh, Jeb Burnside's busy googling. So I'll say, "Hi, Dave Higdon. How you doing?" From uh, Wichita, Kansas. What's going on? Oh, uh, just d- doing ducky out here. Uh, wonderful weather, if you don't mind triple digits and uh, uh, light winds. Good day to go out and do a little sailplane flying. Yeah, yeah. And uh, how you doing, Jeb? You still there? Jeb Burnside's out there talking to us from somewhere near Sarasota, Florida, and uh, uh, googling unexplained airplane crashes. I'm I'm fine. I'm well. I'm I'm closing in on it here. Um, uh, spent the morning washing the airplane yeah. uh, as part of a multi-day process, getting it ready for um, this. There's this air show coming up. Um, oh, that's right. Week, in a week oh, or yeah. so, I'm, I'm, I'm ready to. Yeah, I, I've I heard should, of this. But isn't I check isn't, my calendar? Isn't flying to the air to the to the fly-in gonna just get the airplane dirty again? Well, yeah, but you got to start somewhere, I guess. But it'll start out faster. Well, there's that. There's that. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Anyways, and I'm Jack Hodgson, and I'm coming Yay. to you from high atop Lookout Point in Toto. We're not in Disneyland anymore, Nottingham, New Hampshire. I just got back yesterday from uh, a week in uh, Anaheim, California, staying at the Disneyland Hotel right, right next to uh, the, 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 the place, the magical place. I really like Disneyland. I'm a sucker for that stuff. I, I like it a lot. So we had a good time. And, I like uh, the rides. Yeah, we went out one night, and uh, the uh, the conference uh, presenters uh, uh, treated us all to a, a, an afternoon and evening in the park, and so we spent uh, from about four five four thirty five o'clock until midnight uh, in Disneyland and going from ride to ride, and we managed to get on just about every ride in the park, all the major ones. We we rode you know Space Mountain and Matterhorn and and uh, Indy Jones and Haunted Mansion and and uh, and Toad. Wild ride. We went on that one too, and uh, uh, we had a good we had a good old time. It was a lot of fun. Oh, but, you kids! Yeah, and uh, and in some ways, some of those rides are more dramatic than my ride with Don Weaver in the pits. All right, I mean, those rides are intense. They and they're big on negative G's. I was thinking about this. All right, the the roller coaster rides are are very very big on negative G's. It must be negative G's that give people thrills, because they force you into negative G's all the time in those rides. It's pretty. Oh yeah, the nothing that 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 step off of an airplane door, uh, just like that first plunge at the top of the roller coaster. 
except uh, the roller coaster doesn't last as long. Yeah. yeah although they never, we ne- there certainly are roller coasters out there that will get you inverted. These don't get you inverted, but they do really hard, you know, nose downs, if you will, pull downs, um, where the pitch track over. pitch the, over pitch overs. Yeah. Thank you. Um, and, uh, and the track is, you know, cause the, cause the cars are, are, you know, grabbing the track. They don't leave the track. So when the track goes suddenly dips, suddenly you get the negative G that way. And, uh, um, and and you, you just like it lifts you out of the car. It's trying to, anyways. Um, I'm not big on roller coaster rides, but uh, it was kind of. I uh, love coasters. Yeah, it was kind of fun. I'd never I, been it, on it, that Indy Jones ride. Indy Jones ride before. That's really something. That's very atypical roller coaster. It's it's sort of I, a combination I, I, of the Star Tours motion simulator platform on a moving track, so that you're. It's very interesting. Jeb was talking about the safety heading here under the. UAS code of conduct. Yeah, and I got one of them. It, it, it was the first of it made Jeff Jeb chuckle. This one makes me kind of go, "What?" It said, "We will ensure UAS flights will be conducted only after a thorough assessment of risks associated with the activity. These this risk assessment will include, but is not limited to." And there's some sane stuff here: weather conditions relative to the performance capability of the system crew fitness for flight operation, overlying airspace compliance with aviation regulations as appropriate to the operation, uh, off-nominal procedures, command, control, communication, payload spectrum requirements, reliability, performance, and airworthiness to establish standard. Here's the one here that I think is going to be the most problematic. Identification of normally anticipated failure modes, paren loss link, power plant failure, loss of control, etc., and the consequences of failure. Uh, anybody that hadn't read it should check Mac McClellan's uh, little column in uh, yesterday's EAA newsletter about his autopilot failing. <laughs> really? While I he haven't. was in what? straight and level flight in his Baron, coming back uh, from a trip with his wife, Stancy, and how he watched the little yoke twitch a little bit and then twitch the other way, and he thought at first that it was just the autopilot anxious to be working because it was smooth air, and then... Mac noticed some clouds up ahead, and it's going to get bumpy, so that'll give the autopilot something to do. When suddenly it went 45 in one direction, went back to level, and then 90 degrees the other way. That's probably not right. That's not kind of that's kind of not a normal mode of operation, yeah, no. right? And it is a, uh, a, a an anticipated failure mode. Uh huh. That has no bloody way of warning you in advance of it actually just doing it. And it, the consequences of failure, you don't have anybody up there. The guy that's flying the damn thing is on the ground, maybe line of sight, maybe thousands of miles away. And the stability system in that airplane just decides to go foobar. Yeah. Consequences of failure? Crash. Consequences of failure in the wrong place? Dead people in a crash. Yeah, no, I, I agree. I, I agree. Jeb, did you find any unexplained uh, airliner crashes? Yeah, this well, this is not uh, an airliner crash. This is um, this goes back all the way to October twenty three, two thousand two. So it's almost ten years ago. Uh, it took the NTSB almost four years, uh, well, almost three and a half years, to come up with the uh, probable cause explanation. I remember the one you're talking about. Go ahead. This this came out of, I think it came out of New Orleans Lakefront, headed uh, east. Uh, But it it came down in Spanish Fort, Alabama, 
Um, I'm going to read this. I'm going to read from the. Uh, uh, this this was a an, a, uh, a cargo uh, Cessna caravan so, uh, solo pilot flying at night, uh, three thousand feet. There was a DC ten nearby, uh, but posed no no wake turbulence conflict or no you know collision threat. It was at four thousand feet. Um, it headed for into New Orleans, I believe. Uh, the pilot, you know, is, I need to deviate. I need to deviate. He's, he's talking to ATC. Uh, uh, airplane went out of control, crashed. Um, I'm going to read a couple of things from the NTSB report. Uh, red transfer fur or scuff marks mm-hmm. were observed on many pieces of the airplane wreckage. These marks were concentrated on the lower airframe skin forward of the main landing gear and nose landing gear area. The safety board in four laboratories compared the red marked airplane pieces to samples of red colored ion items found in the wreckage. These examinations determined that most of the most of the red marks were caused by parts of the airplane cargo and items encountered during the wreckage recovery. The marks exhibited random directions of motion and none of the marks exhibited evidence of an in-flight collision with another aircraft. A small piece of black anodized aluminum found embedded in the left wing was subsequently identified as a fragment from a cockpit lighting dimmer. Mm-hmm. Um, as I say, I think the NTSB went a long way here to, to, uh, um, uh, minimize or, or, uh, um, suggest that this caravan had not been hit by something every, at the time, everyone was like, yeah, there, this was near Pensacola. This was near Tyndall air force base. There's something, you know, they're flying some drones or some experimental craft down there. One of them got loose. And uh, this guy was saw it coming and tried to get it out of its way, and you know zigged when he should have zagged or something mm-hmm. like that. Uh, but it, I, I'm trying to figure out how red marks on the underside of the fuselage. Um, um, only most of them were caused by parts of the airplane cargo and items encountered during the wreckage recovery. How do you get? On the bottom side of the aircraft, how do you get wreckage or items from within the aircraft to leave marks on the underside of the fuselage in a crash situation? Yeah, I don't. I don't uh, know. And how does a a small piece of black anodized aluminum, um, identified as a fragment of a cockpit lighting dimmer, wind up in the left wing? I know. I hear you. I, I I hate to think of the idea of NTSB being complicit in this kind of a of a I don't know. Call it a cover up. That's a little extreme. I don't. I don't know that complicit would be the. But the, you think they the, went out? They they worked real hard to explain things that were. I think they worked real hard. Yeah, to to explain how some of this uh, could have some logical outcome, but even then, uh, they say, "quote These examinations of these red marks." Okay. These examinations determined that quote most of the red marks right. were caused by parts of the airplane cargo yeah. and items encountered during the record recovery. Not all of them. Yeah. So. So I, I don't know. I mean, the other, the other big. This all goes. This all goes back to to uh, the uh, uh, TWA eight hundred uh, explosion. Okay. Right. And, the and, whole uh, somebody saw a missile that really wasn't there. No. It, it, the, or the, was yes, there. 
Yeah, the, the, the Saturday Night Live uh, weekend update. This week, the NTSB determined that TWA 800 was downed uh, uh, by a frayed wire. The, fray, the wire became frayed when it was hit by a missile. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, the other mysterious plane crash that uh, was in the news this past week is the uh, Air France 447. Um, right. Did, uh, we didn't talk about this last week, I don't think, did we? I think <sighs> we talked briefly, about it offline, I th- yeah. I think, yeah. I think we talked about it. it well, we, we were doing this the day of. Maybe that's what it was, yeah. That's what it was. And, and what happened is while we were online... Uh, doing doing the recording of the episode, I think the report came out. Yeah, uh, I managed to get it downloaded and started looking at it later. So, is there on. anything new in here? Is this just it's just just a terrible <laughs> tragedy? There, people mistakes were made and uh, people died. Well, kind of, sort of, yeah. First of all, the English language version of the final report is more than two hundred pages. Oh, yeah, not counting appendices. Uh, and the appendices go into the the, the uh, uh, transcripts, the, the flight recorder. I'm sorry, the, the cockpit voice recorder transcripts, um, graphing of the flight data recorder uh, readouts, um, various checklists um, that that the uh, BEA BEA being the uh, French counterpart to the NTSB, uh, the BEA determined uh, were relevant, et cetera, et cetera. At the end of the day, um, they basically said that uh, the pitot tubes froze up and the uh, flight crew, uh, in reacting to the loss of the computer system and the disengagement of the autopilot, um, flew the airplane in such a manner that it exited the flight envelope and could not recover. Right. Did not. Was unable to recover. Uh, And there's a lot of reasons for that. There are a lot of different recommendations that come out of this. Uh, they are as as uh, varied as uh, uh, improvements to the search and rescue scheme for that section of the world, uh, improvements to the ways in which um, carriers are monitored by uh, uh, regulatory authorities uh, like EASA uh, and uh, the certification of the airplanes themselves, yeah. uh, as well as the training of pilots who fly them. Maybe I'm just focusing on a, on a relatively trivial aspect of this, but the piece that keeps catching my attention is the way these fly-by-wire flight controls work. Um, the way these these joysticks, these side sticks, um, you're, you're keying on the, uh, the 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 concept that was identified by the Popular Mechanics article. Perhaps I didn't read that article, but well, that, I, I've that that yeah. writer and I, his name escapes me. But what you're getting at, though, is Let's say you and I are in the same uh, Airbus cockpit, A330 cockpit in this case, and uh, you have your right, you're, you're, let's say you're in the right seat, I'm in the left seat. You have your right hand on the stick, I have my left hand on the stick, and it's a, it's a side stick configuration. Mm-hmm. And I apply some pressure on that side stick to make the airplane do something. There is no feedback of what I am doing on your side stick. Right. And that's what I just discovered. What I'd, what I'd heard some time ago was the fact that there's no feedback from the flight controls, apparently. Um, so you, you don't, you know, the, the, you know, for example, if I'm flying in my Cessna or whatever, right, and there's a hard connection between the, between the controls and the control surfaces, and, 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 you know, absent some structural failure, I can trust that the position of the controls tell me something about the position of the control surfaces. And apparently that's not the case in, in these, these side stick fly-by-wires. Is that, am I right about that? 
That's pretty much yeah. Yeah, uh, and then, I do believe that there are some indicators in the system. Right, but but the indicators are that, visual indicators that you have to be watching, right? Yeah, it's it, but it's a visual indication, a graphic indication right. of the control surface yeah. position. So, so which, that was my if first. You learn to fly that airplane and learn that the stick position is not going to be telling anything. Should be the first thing you look at. Yeah, but they had a lot of. I mean, I'm not to make excuses, but they had a lot of things going on that they were looking at. It would have been, you know, it, 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 you know, if just their hands had been telling them that something was amiss, that would have been huge. And then recently, I discovered what Jeb just described, which is the realization that not only do the sticks not tell you about the position of the controls, but the sticks don't even tell you about the position of the others sticks and uh that's just a recipe for disaster if you ask me well it, it is um hindsight's 2020 yeah. and okay. and uh you know knowing what we know now about air france 447 um perhaps uh, the airplane shouldn't have been certificated or should have been certified as the way it was um yeah i'll let people a little bit more knowledgeable about how these systems work and whether or not there are indicators for example in the cockpit or whether they're they're um easily um um discernible you know in a, in a time of high stress but i come back to something that's just to me a little bit more elemental and a little bit more simple and a little bit would have resolved this earlier on Okay, you're droning along in cruise. The autopilot is is flying the airplane. It's you know two a.m. roughly your time. Um, you're kind of poking through some thunderstorms. Um, it's you you know what's going on. You go through these these thunderstorms. The pitot tubes ice up. You you get a few bells and whistles. Master caution goes bing bong. Uh, some other warnings pop up. Um, autopilot kicks off. Um, the enunciators flash that you know the, the control system logic is is gone into what's called alternate uh, uh, mode, alternate law, I should say. Um, what do you do? Mm-hmm. Ten seconds earlier, your airplane is flying straight and level, just as you want it to. Okay, uh, you have backup standby instrumentation, even if your even if your primary flight display has gone off the air. You have backup instrumentation. It will tell you the airplane's attitude. It will tell you the airplane's airspeed. Um, what do you do? What do you do? What are you going to do? How about nothing? Mm-hmm. Just don't touch anything. You know, lift the wing if it needs a, if, if it needs a little lift. You're at 37,000, 35,000 feet. There's literally, you know, there's, there's not really, a, there's some traffic, you know, on the same track, you know, maybe 20 miles away. Uh, uh, behind you, um, big whoop. Okay, there's probably not going to be anybody around you. Even if there is, 500 feet isn't going to kill anybody. Let, you know, right? Try to just try to maintain heading. Try to maintain altitude. That's all you have to do. And chances are the airplane's going to do most of this on its own. Okay, you don't have to start a climb. You don't have to go to, to- uh, take off, go around thrust. All you have to do is nothing. Yeah. And then during that nothing, figure out what's going on? And during that nothing, wait for the pitot system to come back. It's going to, you got pitot heat on probably, or if you, if you don't, you kick it on. In 30 seconds, you know, it, the, the ice is going to melt. You're going to fly out of the, out of the thunderstorm, out of the, cl- the ice-generating cloud. Uh, maybe a little bit of turbulence. Okay. <sighs> yeah. 
use the standby instruments, keep the wings more or less level, keep the heading basically the same, keep the altitude basically the same. That's not rocket science. Mm-hmm. And you shouldn't hit anything if you do. And you shouldn't hit it. you got 35,000 feet between you and the water. Yeah. You shouldn't be hitting anything in the first place. So there's nothing out there to hit. You think- I, I've, ne- I've thought all along they didn't. They had so many conflicting indications. I agree. That they, they, they never knew exactly what to believe. I mean, even the standby instruments on this aircraft are electronic. Yeah. And they depend on the same airspeed sensors as the rest of them. So when those airspeed oh. sensors go away, a whole lot of your data let's, gets a let's, little confused. Let's say for for the sake of argument that yes, the the uh, um, airspeed uh, sensing was kaput. Okay, there was no airspeed being sensed by any primary or standby instrument on this airplane. Period. End of statement. How do you produce airspeed? Pitch plus power equals performance. Okay. And um, five degrees nose up at 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 takeoff thrust equals, let's say, you know, seven hundred fifty foot per minute climb. Three degrees nose up at takeoff thrust equals zero degrees climb, zero feet per minute climb. Three degrees down is a thousand foot per minute descent. We should know that just by virtue of having sat in that seat. And, and paid attention for X number of years. So all we really have to do is leave the throttles alone, pitch the airplane and for level flight, or in this case, probably you know, two and a half degrees nose up or something like that is, is level flight, um, and leave it alone. Yeah. It seems like you guys are now putting a lot more back onto the pilots than I've heard you in the past. No, no, actually. Yeah. I, 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 don't feel airplane, like they had, I don't feel they really had a chance because... That that whole time they're trying to sort out so many uh, error code messages. They got so much failure going on, so many systems going south. They've got primary indicators in conflict with one another. Uh, they got standby instruments that are telling them something else, uh, and they've got to sort this all out in about three and a half minutes. And Jack, you made a good point about the no feedback and the controls. And the ability of, I think the real key here is the ability of the controls to do different things in different hands. Because in aircraft like we're normally used to, including a lot of more conventionally controlled airliners, if one of the pilots is cranking the yoke all the way over in one direction, the other guy's going to have trouble trying to crank it the other way at the same time. And they're going to know instantly that they're both fighting one another. Right. Mm-hmm. So you throw into the mix all these error messages, all these failure codes. They're trying to look through these books, discern what the hell's happening here. In the meantime, they got two 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 officers on the flight deck trying to do conflicting things with the controls and not aware of one another doing it. And in three and a half minutes, it's all moot. Yeah, Jeb, has your attitude about pilot error in this thing changed? Or <sighs> the airplane certainly let them down. Okay. The, the pitot tubes were known to to um, ice up in certain circumstances, and, and this is kind of a textbook case for one of those circumstances. Um, the airplane, when the pitot tubes, when when the airplane's computers lost airspeed data, um, they did what they were programmed to exactly. do, which was disengage the autopilot, um, switch to alternate law, 
send a bunch of bells and whistles uh, to the master uh, control panels. Um, whether or not those reactions from the airplane systems were, are appropriate is certainly debatable. I would suggest that some of them probably weren't. But at the end of the day, this is a at this particular this is a three man crew. The captain was in in rest in in the rest area. Um, so you've got the the basically the first officer in the left seat and the second officer in the right seat. The second officer was pilot flying, and the first officer's duties in those in this instance, uh, the pilot not flying, I should say, his duties in in this instance is to be troubleshooting, while the the pilot flying's duties is to fly the fucking airplane. And they both got down in the weeds trying to resolve, trying to figure out what the logic was telling them, what the bells and whistles were telling them. And sure, that's important. Um, it's a lot more important if you're on short final or shooting an ILS. It's right. not all that important when you're at cruise altitude. You've in the got middle time, of the Atlantic. In the middle of the Atlantic. You've got time and capabilities uh, to, to resolve all this kind of stuff. That, except for the cruise actions, the airplane was not in any danger of falling out of the sky. Yeah. Yeah. So is this case closed or is there going to be more here? I'm not sure this will ever be closed in the sense that, you know, what people will be asking what if won't be asking what if questions. This is the final report from the uh uh the authority uh task with investigating this accident. Uh under f- I I know, you know, two things about French law, dick and all. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um but it's my, it's my understanding that under French law, uh, an event like this may give rise to criminal proceedings. So we may see some of that. We will certainly see civil lawsuits. So is, is the final chapter on this written? It is from some aspects, from, uh, in some respects, but from many others, no. Yeah. And Jack, there's if there's one area in this whole thing that, in my mind, comes closest to definable as the the the, the defining pilot error that you could point toward, it was the decision to proceed toward that kind of weather and not deviate. They That's, did. I don't disagree with you, except to point out that they did deviate slightly left. Of course, we don't know what they're on board, whether weather radar was telling them. Um, and um, right in the, in the 48, hour, 48 hours after this, within 48 hours after the, the jet crashed, I think it was Jeff Masters at uh, Weather Underground. It was, it was someone like that with some, some heavy-duty meteorological credentials. Started looking at the available data and um, speculated that the crew found themselves, uh, you know, seeking the weak spot in this line of thunderstorms and perhaps, in fact, got into a situation where the radar was attenuating and, in fact, um, went through not the softest spot but one of the hardest spots mm-hmm. in this line of thunderstorms. That happens with weather radar. That's, that's one of its, its characteristics. It's one of its drawbacks and one of the things that you, you need to learn if you're going to ever be flying an aircraft with airborne radar on. Um, could they have, I think what Dave is saying is they could have, have circumnavigated these thunderstorms by a wider margin. And with that, I agree wholeheartedly. Yeah. Okay. All right, then. Well, thank you. Well, that, that question came up uh, in talking to some uh, uh, locals here a few days ago. 
who are uh, friends of the family of uh, Kansans that died in the uh, crash in Florida a couple of weeks ago. The aircraft broke up in flight, according to the evidence. Is that presented the, the NTSB preliminary? The Pilatus? Yeah. Yeah, okay. And, you know, the, the, the question came up, uh, you know, what, what, do you think the, what do you think happened here? I said, well, something went out of control, whether the airplane broke strictly as a result of the encounter with the weather uh, that's not impossible, but it's not the highest likelihood. Uh, a more likely situation is that in trying to pick a way, find a way through it, that the airplane got upset and the pilot maybe overreacted a little bit on the yoke and trying to arrest a descent. Uh, airplane is going upside down, something like that. This happened to a, a friend of ours in his Cessna 210 a few years ago. He got vectored in what he was told was a, a good direction, and he wound up in the eye of about a level four, level five thunderstorm. Right, right. And his airplane broke up in flight. Uh, and we still have, as a as as a community, a little trouble with this idea that deviating a half hour out of your way to avoid weather that dangerous and that proven to be deadly. Uh, somehow makes us less of a pilot than if we try to tough it out. We can pick our way through this, mm-hmm. uh, and you know, winding up an NTSB record. Right. Now, or the friend that Jeb knows I'm talking about, I can't fault him much because he was asking for input, and the input that he got was bad. Uh, I'm not sure about the Pilatus accident. Yeah. But encountering that kind of weather at that kind of altitude at that kind of speed. Uh, man, there's a whole lot of things you got to dial down in terms of how violently you react to the airplane, how badly you want to control it versus letting it ride through some of the weather. Just try right. to keep it right side up and right. the airspeed in the green or lower. Uh, and, you know, if it's batting you 3,000 feet a minute up, tell ATC you need a box. Yeah. But trying to push the nose down to counter that, that's a prescription to break something. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 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 My uh, several, several things uh, arise out of that. Um, first of all, the phrase, uh, we're going to be a little bit off our altitude is all you need to say. <laughs> okay. Uh, and I have had to, I have had to use that phrase. Um, and the controller is like, yeah, let us know when you're when you're back, and and you know, I'll keep us posted, kind of thing, because you know he can't do much else at this stage. Right? How much uh, off your altitude is acceptable in that kind of situation? I mean, in terms of ATC, um, how much well, do they need to keep everybody safe? You have, generally speaking, a 300 foot. Let's 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 back up. We're, we're on an IFR flight plan, an IFR clearance, where it cruise altitude. Generally speaking, you have 300 feet tolerance. If you exceed that 300 feet... 300 total or 300 each way? 300 either way. Okay. Okay. Plus or minus. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Not 150, but 300 up plus or minus. Got it. Um, If you exceed that without telling ATC in advance, you you can possibly create a conflict. And someone's going to have to file a piece of paper on that. And controller is likely not going to accept all the blame. So right. that's that that gives rise to to an enforcement action. 
Um, but if you're in an area of thunderstorm, and generally, you know, you're only you're not going to be flying, you know, uh, wingtip to wingtip with anybody. Uh, generally, that kind of thing is is uh, fairly. Uh, let me put it another way. Generally, when you're flying in an area of thunderstorms. Um, there's not that much traffic around you. There might be somebody <laughs> behind you. There might be somebody in front of you. Uh, there's generally not going to be somebody beside you, you know, five miles or, or uh, um, you know, a thousand feet above you, a thousand feet below you. So generally you're not going to get into a, a real conflict situation. Flip side of which is, yeah, you're at an assigned altitude. Uh, before you leave that assigned altitude, you should probably say something. Uh, ATC, uh, you know, center, um, uh, one, two, three, four, five. We're going to be a little bit off our altitude. We'll let you know when we're when we're fully recovered here. You want to keep the shiny side up, of course. Uh, you you should be entering this this area um, at or below the maneuvering speed appropriate for your aircraft's weight. That's okay. a great idea. Okay, and and Dave and I, and Dave worked on an article for Aviation Safety here within the last couple of three months that discuss that very idea of how to, how to handle turbulence, how to penetrate turbulence. And the, 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 one of the major punchlines coming out of that is um, that, by definition, the maneuvering speed published for your aircraft is too high because it's based on the aircraft's gross weight. And by definition, you are never at the aircraft's gross weight when you're in cruising altitude and penetrating a uh, Right. And somewhat counterintuitively, the maneuvering speed and goes down. Goes down as the gross exactly. weight. Yeah, it, it, it's exactly. not what you would think. As you get lighter, it doesn't go up. It goes right. down. And, and in fact, maneuvering speed, you know, part of the article also discussed how maneuvering speed may or may not be the, the speed, uh, the appropriate speed or the appropriate metric we should be using for turbulence penetration. Yeah. That's putting interesting. All that aside, yeah, putting all that aside. Um, so you, you got power back. You're, you're maintaining altitude. You're maintaining heading. Uh, you're maintaining the wings level. Except... Altitude excursions, right? Don't worry about the altitude. My the altitude first exposure out on the other side of the My first exposure to that phrase, uh, uh, three eight November. Would you like a box? And I thought, do you mean to throw up in? <laughs> and yeah. it, it, the the situation was August uh, here in Can Western Kansas. I was on my way back from Loveland, Fort Collins, Colorado. I was doing my solo cross country. Uh, I did my duel out there. I got signed off, and I'm going to fly three stops back to Augusta, Kansas. Uh, Mid-afternoon, the high plains of western Kansas in August, sailplane pilot's dream, baby. Yeah. Goes way up. Cherokee 140, not so pleasant. And the turbulence was taking me... 300, 500, I was on flight following, 300, 500, 1,000 feet off my chosen altitude. It was turning me off heading. I'm trying desperately to just do what my instructor said, which is nothing sudden, slow it down, keep it in the green, and just let it ride. Yeah. And a nice lady controller from Denver Center said, 3 November, would you like a box? <laughs> uh, yeah, I could, I, I, I've got some six acts, thanks. No, no, I mean an altitude box. Uh, let me give you 4,000 feet to start, plus or minus your assigned. Okay. Well, yeah, okay. And, and that's what she gave me. And she said, uh, I, I do need you to let me know if you think you're going to bust 2,000 up because uh, there is passing traffic overhead at 4,000 up. And I'd sure hate for you, him to be in down air the same time you're in up air. Right. 
Yeah, yeah thanks. Okay, I'd never see that guy. He'd never see me. Yeah. Uh, when you're an IMC, uh, separation standards are a lot different. Uh, you're less likely to have traffic within five miles of you uh, at the same altitude, uh, but you could have passing traffic overhead. And that three that three hundred foot margin that Jeb was talking about is a is is a number that was set based on the limitations of the technology mm-hmm. when the number sure. was set. Mm-hmm. The, uh, altimeters, accuracy, uh, transponder uh, encoder ability to detect altitude correctly, and then a fudge factor to help it make it safer. So we wind up with three hundred feet. Yeah. Yeah, that sounds pretty interesting, Jeb. I'm assuming that that article that we've been talking about that Dave did is already out, right? It is on the streets, and I'll. I'll if you're able uh, to tell us what month, that would be interesting. And, Moving uh, on here. Um, one, one, okay, Jeb, go two, ahead. Two quick things on this on this PC12 crash. Um, a lot of people have come up to me. This was a this was a tragedy. This is a a, a, a young family, uh, prosperous uh, community leader uh, out of Johnson City, Kansas. I think it was. Yeah. Um, 45-ish uh, uh, husband and wife, four kids. Um, all of them died. One of the children was ejected from the aircraft as it, as it came apart and, and descended. He was, his body was found some distance away from the main wreckage. Other pieces of the airplane were found some distance away from the main wreckage. Um, I had people coming up to me you know, saying, what do, you, what do you know about this? What happened with this? What, da, 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 da. And I just kind of looked at him and said, the dude flew into a Fucking thunderstorm! What did he expect was going to happen? Mm-hmm. Now, there's is that some, a known fact, by the way? Yeah, pretty much. Okay, and go you, ahead. And you looked much, at yeah. You, uh, yeah, I, I was. I just happened to be looking at the next rad uh, on that specific day, and there was just a lot of green, uh, a lot of red and yellow and orange. Okay. Uh, uh, All right. uh, along the, the peninsula of Florida. I'd say a maybe a, um, a two four zero to zero six zero kind of band. Um, it was just covering the the state from the Gulf to the yeah, okay, Atlantic um, hey. north north of uh, the games north of the uh, Ocala area right. basically. And then the guy's coming out of uh, I don't know Fort Pierce, Melbourne area, headed for Kansas, and he's going right through it. And he gets factoring, he gets you know da 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 from from ATC and. At some point, someone hears him declare a mayday, and then they hear an ELT. Go ahead, Dave. De- deviation was possible, but it was going to be a major deviation, like 100 miles off course. Yeah. He got a head over the water. Yeah. He got a heading from ATC um, and was flying that heading, but it wasn't good enough is, the, is yeah. the, one of the punchlines there. But here's where it gets genuinely weird, okay? Someone just this last week. Uh, a friend of mine was at a, a dinner party, a uh, cocktail party or something like that, and the conversation went around to this. And um, the um, conversation went so far as to note that the aircraft involved had formerly been owned by uh, an attorney for some woman here in Florida who apparently killed her kid or something. Or, you know, I don't know who. I don't know the woman. I don't, I didn't, I don't pay any attention to that crap. But then the conspiracy theory started flying, 
And the conspiracy theory oh, was, geez. was there a bomb on this airplane that someone had installed some point before this guy purchased it because it was owned by this attorney? And did the bomb explode finally and blow up the airplane? I'm like, are you people on drugs? Yeah, okay, good. I'm glad you said that because that just, yeah. Yeah, I just... Come on, you know, go talk about something else. Yeah, I mean, we, this it's interesting. This story came up this morning. At, we had a little UCAP brunch this morning, and uh, and one of the things that came up around the table was this particular accident, you know, uh, tragedy. And uh, and I, at the time, I wasn't as clear that it was a known weather situation. And someone said, you know, what do you think causes this? And I said, of course, we don't know. Weather seems the most likely. Uh, and then we were speculating on other possible causes, and one was uh, a medical emergency on board. Um, did did the pilot was the pilot you know incapacitated? But if it's clear that it went into weather, that certainly is the most likely. You know, yeah, suspect. the uh, fl- flight. Uh, I know somebody has put. I haven't been able to find it. I've had people ask me about it, but there was a flight aware track put together with a weather overlay, right. uh, and it's as definitive as the the you know the day I was inadvertently steered into level three, level four weather for twenty minutes. Uh, was I, when I got on the ground after that, I watched the the loop on a on a WSI machine, and I looked at the time stamp and said okay, and I stopped it. And I, this is about the time I entered it. Watched the next six minute or the next three cycles every six minutes, and this is where I exited. And I looked at it and thought, man, I was lucky I had good instructors because it was tailor made for me to foobar myself to death. Yeah. Yeah, uh, did so, that yeah. kind of weather will the, do. Yeah, uh, the uh, yeah the article Dave wrote appears in the July 2012 issue of Aviation Safety. That's the one on the street right now. Thank you. Okay, now we're moving on. I think um, we are reaching the end of our allotted time here. But I did want to talk a little bit about this. Uh, so when this pilot's bill of rights first presented itself, uh, you know, we we kind of laughed at it because it just didn't seem like a very likely thing. And in speaking of conspiracy theories, we had. We, we figured that there were ulterior motives here, but now it's, you know, kind of making some progress. It's not near passing, right? But uh, it's making some progress. If it were to pass, is this a good idea? Is this going to help anything? It won't hurt. Yeah. It's a quick answer. And, and, uh, but unless it gets, well, well give it, can you give me a couple examples of things that are in it? I mean, what, let what me, does it let me, offer? Let me, let me find, um, a copy of it first of all. And while Jeb's looking at that, let me give you a preliminary answer. That's kind yeah. of an all encompassing one. Please. Uh, somebody's going to have to write regulations to make this pilot's bill of rights fit with the FAA's system of doing things. Uh huh. And it's in the authoring of those regulations and how they're promulgated that the answer, will this do any good? Okay. Will they have to write question. new regulations or change existing regulations? Could be a little of both. So do, 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 the, do any of these, these quote-unquote rights conflict with existing regulations? Yeah, I have to wait on Jeb. Or yeah, okay. Right. Okay, I've got, a, I've got a copy of the bill here in All front right. of me. I mean, uh, what are some of the highlights so, here? A lot of this has to do with... Um, Procedures uh, that are non-regulatory in nature, but are perhaps um, uh, procedures that the um, um, FAA or NTSB bar follows. In other words, uh, procedures that lawyers uh, involved in enforcement cases before the before the FAA follow. And, and um, for example. Um, um, 
in general, this is this would be a statute now in in, in uh, Title Forty Nine, as opposed to um, uh, let, me, let me back up. This would be a statute, um, yeah, in Title Forty Nine of the of the U.S. Code, uh, which would dictate to the administrator of the FAA what he or she may do and what he or she may delegate. Um, shall provide timely written notification to an individual who's the subject of an investigation. Well, okay, what's timely? Uh, how, how do you define timely? Um, information required, the nature of the investigation, um, a variety of things uh, pertain to that. Um, access to air traffic data. The administrator shall provide an individual described in paragraph one with timely access to any air traffic data in the possession of the FAA that would facilitate the individual's ability to productively participate in a proceeding relating to investigation prescribed, described in such paragraph. In other words, the FAA must timely uh, uh, share with the, uh, the airman um, data that it has on, you know, whether it's radar data or communications transcripts or, or anything like that. Um, Let's see, uh, contractor data, like from Lock, Lockmart, uh, flight service station con- transcripts, things like that. Um, individual may obtain the, the, the data by submitting a request to the administrator, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, airman certificates, um, uh, amendments, modifications, suspension, revocations. Um, would, ch- would change some of that to... Um, Make let's see, may not be imposed under this section. May be imposed under this section, unless the board finds an interpretation is arbitrary, capricious, or not otherwise not according to law. In other words, the FAA can't throw a careless and reckless at you just because they can. They have to. They have to. It has to be non-arbitrary, non-capricious, mm-hmm. and, and otherwise according to the law. Um, uh, there's a bunch of other stuff in here. It's it's some of this is is very now uh, yeah, it gets into some some things about improving the NOTAM system, which is a good thing. We you know we're we're still dealing with a NOTAM system that was basically uh, quote perfected unquote back in the 1950s um, when we had teletypes and uh, we were sending things at you know maybe 120 baud or something, right? Uh, and using uh, yellow paper and everything else, but uh, um, there's, you know, things in here on NOTAM uh, uh, improvements, medical certification requirements, uh, things of this sort. Is this a good thing? Absolutely it would be a good thing. Um, our skepticism, I'm going to put words in y'all's mouths here, uh, our skepticism on this uh, in the past has stemmed from uh, our knowledge of, of, uh, of the individual pushing some of this, and some of the reasons uh, uh, behind that push. Um, would this be a good thing? Great. Yeah, okay, let's pass this. Is it going to be the end of the world if it doesn't pass? No. Mm-hmm. And I would suggest to you that uh, it has passed the Senate. It is presently uh, been re- has presently been referred to a House committee. I presume that's going to be the Trans- Transportation and Infrastructure Committee in the House. It, unless someone really takes it up on the House side and, and, and pushes it hard, which may or may not happen, it's an election year, so who knows? Anything can happen. Well, the, the, this um, it's, it's not going to go anywhere. It could get folded into some other bill, but the, the big bill 
the, a likely bill uh, into which this could be folded as a as a, a writer, for lack of a better word, has already passed the House. Uh, so is it, I you know I give it fifty fifty, and that's you know feeling magnanimous about okay. it. Okay. Yeah, David, anything you want to add to that? Yeah, real quick. Uh, I, Jeb's right. Uh, our skepticism on this, uh, based in large part to having worked, you know, face to face with the folks in Congress over the years, and uh, we're a little cynical about how things progress there. Uh, I think this might actually have a ghost of a chance of getting a a, a, a hearing and a vote in the House, primarily because of the strength of the House General Aviation Caucus. That's gonna, I was going to ask about that. That's turned into something pretty real, hasn't it? It has turned into something with yeah. actual influence. Yeah. And, and the fact is, fact is that Inhofe's participation on the Senate side in the General Aviation Caucus is one of the reasons this thing finally gained... 60 co-sponsors and if anybody pays much attention 60 is a magic number in the united states senate yes that's what it takes to uh end a filibuster right and because of that that's what it takes to get anything passed yeah. not a majority but 60 and when he hit 60 co-sponsors the leadership let the thing come up for a vote and it passed, and it passed with far more than sixty. About, if I remember, it was right. it was unanimous, which means it went through on a voice vote. Yeah, but, like I said. Um, yeah. Now I pulled up while we're talking here the AOPA uh, website, and where they have a page that lists members of the General Aviation Caucus. In the Senate, there are thirty-nine members of that caucus. In the House, there are one hundred eighty-six, which is almost a majority of the House. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and and uh, some of the prime movers uh, in the House General Aviation Caucus uh, are GA pilots. Sam Graves from Missouri, uh, Republican, uh, has some leadership position on a couple of the committees or subcommittees, and I think he and his Democratic Party counterpart will be the ones that make sure that this at least gets on the radar screen over there. After that, it's going to be a matter of the calendar. Right. You know, whether they can get it into the schedule, because, folks, these guys are going to be gone more than they're in D.C. working uh, between now and the first week in November. So, yeah. Are we going to have to take back some of the things that we said about Senator Inhofe? I wouldn't. <laughs> you, mean, you mean Senator X? Yeah, Senator X. Uh, you know what? So, listen, he did a stupid thing and he wouldn't he wouldn't fess up. But this is not a bad thing he's done. Right. Let's 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 hope that. The the um, stupid thing, as you call it, that he did will have some benefits. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. All right. Shout outs. What do we got? I got one. Okay. You want me to go first? Yep. I uh, so I was exchange- so we had a UCAP brunch this morning, um, and one of our regulars, uh, Laminar Rick S from uh, Vermont, was unable to uh, to attend. But in exchanging uh, text messages with him uh, uh, to that extent, he did tell me something kind of interesting. Which uh, so I, I, then I, as a follow up, I was asking him whether or not he was going to bring his cub to Oshkosh because they're doing the big cub thing at Oshkosh. And he he texted to me. He said, uh, "Sadly, no." He said, "But I'm excited to be going to the World Gliding Championship in Texas." soon he says this is a big deal for the usa and if you go to the world gliding championship webpage here let me see if i can give you guys a link to it here and see now copy link address go over here do this hopefully you just got a link 
It's apparently a big deal. I was talking with some of the other folks at brunch, brunch this morning, and uh, uh, the, the the championship is a big deal, and, and Rick apparently uh, plays a, a pretty big, big role um, in, in a couple of different regards, and I won't elaborate because I don't know. But uh, but very, very cool for Rick S. Laminar for his... Uh, I, I've known for some time now he's very involved in the gliding world, and, uh, and this uh, 30-second... FAI World Gliding Championship in Uvalde, Texas, on in July 28th through August 19. Uh, it sounds like a big deal, and uh, we we wish him the best of luck and the whole USA team. Go USA uh, at the uh, World Gliding Championship. So I tell you, there's just something really. It it's isn't really a spectator sport, unfortunately, but boy, I sure look forward to the day when these guys can carry something that lets you watch it on a virtual display. That how they're working, when they're circling, when they're climbing, when they're racing wide open, when they're turning, making the turn points on a on an out and back triangle and stuff like that, because uh, the the adrenaline that goes with competing in this is really substantial. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, well, certainly did some the te- competition in hang gliders like this, where we do open distance time around a course uh, and one on one, we'd launch off two ramps have to climb to clear a pylon, then climb to clear another one, then clear another one on the descent, and then go through a gate at the landing field. Mm -hmm. And whoever got through there in the fastest time won that heat. Uh, it's really cool. Sounds cool. And, yeah. and the technology certainly exists now. It's just a question of whether or not there's enough money involved to, uh, to be able to take advantage of it. If you want an example of the kinds of things you can do these days, um, not aviation, obviously, but take a look at the America's Cup racing world these days. Um, there's, uh, I believe it's still going on or just wrapped up a preliminary, uh, uh, sort of tournament, if you will, um, leading up to the World Club, real world, correction, the America's Cup. Uh, 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 boat racing, sailing racing, and they're doing some amazing things with onboard cameras and augmented reality displays and and some very, very cool things. So we just need to find the money to apply this to uh, gliding and other aviation events. That would be very, very cool. Very, very cool. Yeah. Anything else? What do you guys got? Go ahead, Dave. Chapter 88, EAA, here in Wichita. Uh, Just a quick shout-out and congratulations to them. Uh, They had a really uh, uh, well-attended and successful uh, uh, what used to be called their Independence Day fly-in, their Fourth of July fly-in. It was actually on the 6th this year because the 4th, or I'm sorry, it's the 7th this year because the 4th was on a Wednesday. Uh, But they had a good crowd at Newton, Kansas, good turnout airplanes, airplanes. uh, they even got uh, some ink from unexpected places, and uh, that can't hurt when next year rolls around. Very nice. Yep. And Jeb? Yeah, a couple of them real quick. Um, first of all, on a down note, um, the uh, uh, Laurel, Maryland uh, Suburban Airport, uh, a long, lot of long and uh, uh, mostly favorable uh, memories of that airport, from my days uh, uh, many, many moons ago, uh, flying in and out of there, is going to be closing. Hmm. Uh, This is a privately owned field. Um, um, It's kind of, I won't say fallen into disrepair in recent years, but uh, some some needed improvements were not made. Um, The owners, um, although the owner is a pilot, he's also, you know, uh, a businessman and realizes the value of the property. Um, 
punchline is the airplane, the airport, I should say, will close midnight August third. Hmm. Uh, yeah. And it's going to be. It's pretty much the last. Um, it's one of the cl- most close-in airports in the D.C. area, um, and it's it's. I think perhaps, uh, with the exception of Fort Meade, which is nearby and is a former uh, uh, Army Air Force base that was privatized a few years back. Um, Fort Meade now is, I think, going to be the only real airport uh, uh, on that Baltimore um, to D.C. corridor that is uh, uh, a GA airport. College Park exists also, uh, but is a little bit uh, displaced from that corridor. So um, farewell to Suburban. Uh, A lot of good and fond memories from that. uh, And uh, good luck to all of those uh, uh, who are going to be displaced uh, by by that closure. The second one... A little bit more interesting. Um, We talked in an episode some weeks ago. um, I think there was a photo from the International Space Station that we were all agog about and got into kind of chatting and chuckling about uh, uh, a somewhat uh, interesting and perhaps famous quote from one of the original Mercury astronauts. Um, When this astronaut supposedly was launched. Someone on the ground asked him what the view was like and he famously quipped another thousand feet and I'll be on top. Yep. Okay. And I don't know, I don't, I don't, I don't remember which episode this was and I don't remember the, our exact discussion but in Googling some of that, um, either during that episode or subsequent to it came across information that perhaps it was John Glenn mm-hmm. uh, who had made that, who had uttered that, that phrase. Well, I took it upon myself to research that a little bit more. Okay, what did you discover? And and wrote Senator Glenn, now retired, uh, living in Ohio. Uh-huh. Uh, wrote the senator with a snail mail letter saying, did you say this? And the uh, letter I got back said that the senator has no recollection. <laughs> okay. Of that. Well, so, now, yeah, all right. Which, which kind of sort of deepens the mystery. Yeah. Who was, yeah. was the letter? I take it the letter was not from the senator? It was from the senator. Well, it was from, I, I don't have it in front of me, uh, but it was on his letterhead and from his office. Okay. okay. Yeah. I, you know, I have I a hard time. I thought that was Armstrong. Uh, I thought that was fact, Armstrong. I think, I think maybe it was Armstrong. I thought that um, was Armstrong. Yeah. Well, wait, Armstrong wasn't one of the originals, though. Yeah. 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 No, yeah. no, no, no. Which Armstrong? No, no, no. Armstrong. Neil Armstrong was not one of the original seven, no. or no. whatever, however many there no, were. He was. He was later. I, I thought it was. I, I think it's more it like was, a shepherd, or a you know. I thought uh, it was a shepherd or a carpenter. Because because John Glenn, God bless him, was a real straight arrow, and I have a hard time imagining him breaking radio discipline like that. I I just you know. I, 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 I can, you know, for what little we know and, you know, you know, the right stuff movie and things like that, I can picture it more being, you know, like an Alan Shepard or a, 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 a Gordon Cooper kind of thing, you know. Um, but I, I heard the line, too. I believe the line, ha- it happened, but we just need to do some re- more research. It's out there. A listener will explain it to us. I still think it was uh, Armstrong. It may have been Armstrong. All I'm saying is that he wasn't one of the originals. Original You're right about that. You're you know? right about that. Um, Anyways, we'll figure it out. We'll, and maybe Jeb will even figure it out before we finish here, but otherwise we'll come back on this. Um, one last uh, shout-out I've got here, and that is to remind folks that UCAP is headed to Oshkosh. And uh, this, is the, this is the last sort of regular episode of the podcast before we head off or, or start doing Oshkosh things. Uh, the next episode will be our Oshkosh preview episode, where we'll be talking about some of the things that we're going to be seeing and look, 
looking forward to at Oshkosh. Uh, and uh, we are uh, looking forward to having a very special guest on the podcast to tell us a little bit more about this year's Air Venture. Um, and then after that, we'll be doing some episodes while we're at, uh, uh, at Air Venture. A couple of highlights I wanted to call your attention to. Uh, we will be recording two full-blown episodes while we're at Air Venture. We'll also be doing our uh, shorter daily episodes. Just We'll, in fact, be doing one every day. We may, in fact, do uh, a, a couple of days where we do multiple shorter episodes. Um, for those of you who have heard them in the past, you know that the, the longer episodes are kind of more telling you what's going on, reporting on things, interviews, that kind of thing. The shorter episodes are more about giving the flavor of the day, things that happened, uh, uh, giving you a feeling of, of the, the energy and, and the things that, that have, are happening on the ground there at AirVenture. So we're going to do a lot of dailies and two full-blown episodes. Um, the other thing that's notable about the episodes is that the the Sunday morning episode, uh, which will be broadcast live on uh, EA Radio as well as recorded for the podcast feed, will in fact, and I'm going to say this officially now, will in fact be UCAP 300, will be our 300th episode. And uh, we're looking forward to having people coming out and say hi to us. Uh, we're trying to arrange for some sort of place where folks can hang out. In the past, people have just brought their lawn chairs and set up uh, on the ground there beneath the deck, and that can work. Um, but uh, we need to be respectful because the, actually the ground around this radio building doesn't belong to the radio station. It's actually the turf of, of I believe it's home-built parking. And uh, we want to make sure we don't interfere with their operations. But uh, we, we do hope that listeners will come out and say hi. And uh, we're hoping to have some special things happen during that episode. So uh, uh, that'll be we're, Sunday we're morning. We're going to throw beads. Yeah, that's yeah, yeah. But you got to do something to get the beads. Uh, so that'll be Sunday morning from ten ten o'clock to eleven thirty uh, from the deck at EA Radio at Air Venture. And last but not least, uh, I want to tell everybody and encourage everybody if you're on the grounds or if you're at uh, in Oshkosh on Thursday evening, we're going to be having our our annual somewhat legendary uh, tie down party uh, uh, out on just outside the airport grounds at the uh, Northwest Gate, uh, the so called Super Eight Gate or the Friar Tucks Gate uh, there. And uh, we're going to have uh, uh, all sorts of beverages, both adult and soft, uh, and uh, those will be available. We'll have some cheesy poofs, and uh, I think we're going to have some music. Uh, I, I'm optimistic that we'll have some of our, our, our regular friends, like James and Rick, uh, uh, maybe play some. And I'm trying to I'm trying to lure the Airspeed band to come on by and uh, and play for us a little bit. So we're going to it have won't some... it won't be just my uh, my iPad. Yeah, no, no, no. Yeah, well, you bring your kazoo. You're hot, you know. So so uh, uh, we'll do that. And, of course, we will be recording some at least one daily episode during the, uh, during the tie-down party. So that's uh, on Thursday evening from 6 p.m. till probably about 8 p.m., maybe a little later, something like that. But uh, right outside the uh, Super 8 gate at the northwest corner of the field. That's from Air Venture. And if you're not able to be in Oshkosh, please do tune into the episodes. We're going to do our best to uh, tell you about the, uh, the, the happenings at the fly-in and give you a feeling for uh, the excitement of uh, this year's Air Venture fly-in. That's my last uh, shout out. You guys got anything more? Just everybody that uh, we 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 will see at Oshkosh. Everybody who's planning to come to Oshkosh that we won't say, travel safe. Yeah, yeah, yep. yeah absolutely. That's Dave Higdon. Dave's an aviation photographer, an aviation journalist, and the U.S. editor for London's World Aircraft Sales Magazine. I've only said that 295 times. You'd think I'd be able to say it by now. Uh, what's going on, David? Uh, what you working on? Where can people find you on the internet? Well, I'm working on getting my decks cleared to go to that place in Wisconsin that we were just talking about. Uh, oh, Jiminy, where to start? Uh, well, there's that story that Jeb was just talking about that's in the July Aviation Safety. Where can they find you on the Internet? 
avbuyer.com, aea.net, uh, aviationsafetymagazine.com, uh, or do a Google search and wade through the old history when I was at Glider Rider or AvWeb or Flight International. And you'll know because I'm not the golf writer or the theoretical physicist. And Jeb Burnside is a freelance aviation writer and editor, serving as the editor-in-chief of Aviation Safety Magazine. How about you, Jeb? What you working on? Where can they find you on the Internet? Kind of like Dave. I'm uh, in uh, clean up the desk and, and pack it up mode. Uh, uh, wheels up out of here uh, on Wednesday. So uh, I've got uh, a bunch of stuff to do and not nearly enough time to do it. That said... Uh, the uh, uh, August issue of Aviation Safety Magazine is, is to bed and at the printer and uh, hopefully will be uh, uh, available to subscribers uh, before they leave for Oshkosh. Uh, a bunch of stuff in it. Um, uh, let's see. what we got a piece in there on um, LSA safety. Are LSAs safe? Uh, really, and, very interesting. And, yeah, uh, looking looking at some of the accident record and some of the types of accidents uh, they're getting into. Our own Mr. Higdon uh, uh, wrote a nice little piece on uh, seven things IFR pilots, instrument pilots, can do uh, to prep uh, during the summertime for uh, uh, for the coming winter weather. That does uh, sound familiar. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. How about that? Yeah. Um, and um, piece in there on thunderstorms, talking about uh, um, uh, how to avoid them, not how to fly through them, which, which is kind of a fool's errand, as I think this episode might have discussed mm-hmm. thoroughly, yep. but how to, how to avoid them instead. And uh, uh, so those are some good things. Um, and I would just point out that well, you can find me on, on aviationsafetymagazine.com and aea.net and jeburnside.com and, and probably, you know, policeblotters.rs.com and, and whatever else. But uh, I would just point out that when you're Googling Mr. Higdon, don't mistake him for the Higgs boson. <laughs> oh, that's right. Yeah, well, that's yet another he, thing. I know he is. He is not the god particle. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm Jack Hodgson. I'm a private pilot, a freelance writer, and a new media producer. Uh, it, it, you know, same story. Fi- finishing things up, trying to get ready for things. Um, round about the time people are seeing this, well, certainly just prior to Oshkosh, uh, we're going to make a cool announcement of a new feature here at the in the UCAP world. Um, and uh, I urge people to just kind of keep an eye on the UCAP homepage uh, for uh, information about that. I'm very excited about this uh, this new development, and uh, I'm, I'm yeah, anxious to hear what people have to say about it. Um, it's uh, I think it's kind of cool. We'll see. And uh, that's all I'll say on that. Uh, you can learn more about me at jackhodgson.com, at aroundthefield.net, and uh, my uh, Kindle books page at Amazon, amazon.com, slash author, slash Jack Hodgson. Big thanks to Jeff Ward for creating our show notes. Thanks to Mike Morgan, Royce Earl, Jim Goldman, and all the others who have created the UCAP disclaimer clips. We are also very grateful for the financial support we receive from our listeners. For information on how you can make a donation to this podcast, see the Uncontrolled Airspace homepage and the box in the right-hand column labeled Tip Jar. It doesn't need to be very much. Just 10 or $15 over the span of a year is a big, big help. And don't forget, you can visit with all of us at the Uncontrolled Airspace website. You can view the forums, check out the wiki, the aviation movies list, the new ratings, webpage of fame, and more. All of that is at uncontrolledairspace.com. David, you had something you wanted to say? Extend your life by coming to Oshkosh by small plane because, you know, time spent flying is not subtracted from your lifespan. Bye-bye. And that's enough talking. Let's go flying. We'll see you in Wisconsin. 
gentlemen, thank you for flying Express Tube Airways today. Please pay attention as we disclaim ourselves from all liability for your discomfort on today's flight. The members of the Uncontrolled Airspace Podcast are participating as private individuals. Their comments do not necessarily represent the views of the various organizations they work with, and anything you hear on this podcast that sounds like advice on aircraft operation is obviously very general. You should always consider your own situation, remember your training, and fly the airplane. But you knew that. Now settle back and relax as we'll be taking off in just a moment. 